Church, if you're new here, we love God's word. In fact, we love it so much, we do verse by verse, and we are in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, open up to uh, Acts chapter 2. We've been in Acts chapter 2, I think, for four weeks. I think this is our fifth week in Acts chapter 2. And I'll have you know we are going to finish today by the grace of God. Somebody, right? And if you don't have this, this is our gift to you. If you don't have one, you can get them. They're right at our front door. We want you guys reading the book of Acts. And then, so we've got this prayer journal and there's also a a place for you to take notes and you can uh, circle up your Bible because I know a lot of you guys don't wanna, you don't wanna mark up your Bible. So we provide this so you can do that. You can take notes and follow along. Again, if you don't have one, this is our gift to you and you can get it right as you walk through the doors. They should have them there. Let's pray real quick. Father, we commit the service to you. This time that we have together, uh, we just commit it to you and we wanna understand truth and how it applies to our hearts and to our lives. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit would do what only the Holy Spirit can do and that's enlighten us today to your truth, that we would have a very real and authentic relationship with, with Jesus and the Holy Spirit and that we trust, we trust you, Lord, that you will direct us and that you're gonna feed us today and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. The last few weeks we've been looking at the early church and, and what made them different, what made them tick and how God's plan for the early church is God's plan for us today. I've actually heard different pastors say this at the end of their service. They say, let's go be the church. Let's go be the church. They'll, they'll conclude every single service with let's go be the church. I like that. <laughs> I like it a lot. Church church is not Sunday. Church is you. Church is me. Church is Monday through Friday. Church is not something we do. Church is what we are. It's, not, it, it, it's really not about doing church. It's, it's about being the church. And yet for many, the concept of church never moves into that personal realm ever. For many today, church is just something that they do. They attend the building at certain times. They attend meetings at certain times. They attend or they might even serve on committees or they might serve on boards and church is just merely something that they put on their calendar, another activity that they do. But it's a far cry from the early church and what Jesus taught all throughout the Bible that the church would be. I love Matthew 16, 18. We said, we we looked at this last week, but where Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I, I, I will build my church. Who builds the church? It's God. Not the pastor, not the board, not the people, it's God. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, on you, my authoritative apostle, my inspired proclaimer of the gospel, I will build my church. I will build my church on the apostolic word. I hope you see the authority in that promise. Building God's church, building his kingdom, it's not ultimately dependent on on you and me, or on our wisdom, or, or on our ability to push forward and persevere. It's ultimately dependent on the power, the wisdom, and the faithfulness of Jesus to keep that promise, I will build my church. And I need you to get this. Jesus didn't say, you will build my church. He didn't say, pastors will build my church. He didn't even say, missionaries will build my church. He didn't say, the assemblies of God will build my church. He said, I will build my church. Now, Paul, who gave everything to see the church built in his lifetime, understood this promise very well. He totally got it. Jesus was building the church. 
Jesus was building the church. In Romans 15, 18, he says, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. It was Jesus who accomplished it. Jesus. It was Jesus who brought about the obedience of the people. I'm not saying that missionaries aren't important. I'm not saying pastors and elders aren't important. But we're not ultimate. Jesus is. Jesus is ultimate. I will build my church. We've got a lot of missionaries that go out and they do the planting. Then we have a lot of pastors who do some of the watering. And the Bible acknowledges that. But make no mistake, it is Jesus who gives the growth. That's why in 1 Corinthians 3.6, he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. But God gave the growth. Jesus is the one who builds the church. And he wasn't talking about a building. He, wasn't talk, he was talking about a body. 1 Corinthians 12.12 12 says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.27 Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And this concept was meant to change the way that we function. I don't just go to church. I am the church. I'm a part of Christ's body. That's why when Paul wrote to Timothy, in Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, he could say this. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. And listen, he, he's not talking about how to act when you come to this building. Do you understand that? He's, he's not saying, he, he was saying that there is a way to live because we are the church. Not just when you come into this building. When you walk out those doors and when you do life every day, there is a way you're supposed to conduct yourself. And as the church, we're the pillar and the support of the truth. I mean, that's the whole point at the end of Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 19. You know this real well, the Great Commission. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. I have the, th the authority to do it, that Jesus is speaking here, over all the powers of darkness, over death and hell, over government and terrorists, and I will do it. I will build my church. And so Jesus says, go. I'm gonna be with you. And that's exactly what we have been reading in the book of Acts chapter two. It requires that we live our life a certain way. In fact, the letters that we call epistles, they speak of the expectation of the church. But they weren't letters written to give guidelines for times to meet, what songs to sing, or how often one should, should have a board meeting. The epistles were written to show the people of the church how they're supposed to live. This has always been the goal. A storm could come tonight and this church could be gone. I mean, I love this building. We've just invested all kinds of money into this building because we're believing God's about to do something big, right? But this building could be gone tonight. If a storm came through, we could lose our building. I had a friend from Central Bible College graduated with me in 2005 and he's pastoring in Texas. He lost his building because of a storm. Literally just like that, one night he had no building. But, but guess what? They were still the church. <laughs> so it's imperative that you and I begin to learn what this means. We could talk about doing church. We could debate for hours. How long should a service last? How long should Pastor Justin preach? <laughs> how long should, how, how long, or how, how, what should be included in a church service? What style of music should be sung for worship? All of this, all of this, listen to me, is minor. 
The epistles give us exhortation. The book of Acts gives us an example, okay? An example. It all started on the day of Pentecost. Peter preached this bold and very confrontational message. About 3,000 souls were added that day. And then Luke even mentioned their initial life change. Acts 2.42 says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. We looked at that last week. Their lives were completely changed. This was the initial change that occurred. And that was how the church started, right? We love to see the simplicity of what they were all about. So will you look with me, and we're going to read it real quick, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. Look with me at verse 42. I know we looked at that last week, but I'll read it again. We're going to go all the way through 47. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe, awe, some of your translations say fear, came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Look at that. They were attending the temple and they were fellowshipping in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord, who? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Listen, I want to be really clear about something concerning this sermon. A lot of people read this text and they think this is a manual on how to see the church have the exact same results as the early church. But you need to remember this, they didn't do anything that caused it. Luke said the Lord was adding. God was doing this. This is not a text where we learn how to grow a church. This is a text where we learn how God grew his church. Don't miss it. Don't miss that, okay? God was at work through his people. Not a place where these people were working necessarily for God. And there's a difference. Perhaps perhaps it's the difference between doing church and being the church. Now, with that being said, I don't want to confuse you either because we're interested in what they were doing. We're interested in what made them tick or what made them work, what made them, what made them do what they did, and, and they, they were incredible examples, right? But what I love about this early church is that they, they had no manual. They had no, they had no guidebook they were looking at. They had no conferences where guest speakers were telling their success stories. There were no pastor celebrities at this point. They had no traditions. They had no history up to this point. They didn't even have a building at this point. So nobody was complaining about the color of the carpet. <laughs> nope. Not as many laughs as I thought. <laughs> so you know what? It was a good thing because it allowed the Holy Spirit to lead this church, to lead this body. It allowed them to be led by the Holy Spirit. It was a new experience for them. They were, they were free to let the Holy Spirit lead. It was the Holy Spirit who was creating the culture of the church. It was the Holy Spirit who was creating the DNA of the church. And it was a church that was just totally, completely, fully led by the Holy Spirit. And it's a beautiful thing. So as we look at this text, I want you to see the greatness of the church. Not, I want you to understand the greatness of the church wasn't in their knowledge or their talent or their ability. It was in their dependence upon a God that is capable of doing anything and everything. They didn't do church. They weren't capable of doing church. They weren't smart enough. They weren't strong enough. They weren't wealthy enough. They certainly weren't seasoned or experienced enough. They didn't do church because they couldn't do church. Instead, they were were the church. Don't miss that. It's important. 
Don't miss it. And, being, and by being the church, they let God work through them. And that's what I really want you to see today. So look with me here, verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now the meaning here is not that they were scared of something, but that they were in awe of the power of God that was constantly being manifested around them. Isn't that something? Man, they showed up, and when they gathered and they showed up, they were very aware of the presence of God. Have you ever heard a pastor pray, Lord, let them be very aware of your presence right now? It's one of my first things I pray for. Anytime I go to a hospital, anytime I'm ministering to someone who's grieving or lost somebody or going through something difficult, my first prayer is, God, let them be very aware of your presence. Because there's something that happens when we become aware of the presence of God, right? Because when God is present, there's this hushed sense of awe. Do you know, awe there translates phobos. It's where we get the word uh, phobia. It's the same word for the response after the death of Ananias and Sapphira. It's this, it's this uh, holy fear. It's, it's, it's more than being amazed, and it's not the same thing as being afraid. It's just being very aware of God's powerful presence. Today we might say something like this. They were continually blown away by God and overwhelmed with the reality of who God is. You know? So the type of awe, or, or like I said, some translations say fear, that's mentioned here, it's a healthy fear because they realize two things, okay? Number one, God is in our midst. They realize that. God was in their midst. And number two, he's doing great things. God's doing great things. There's not a whole lot of awe going on right now sometimes in our churches. Because so we don't let the Holy Spirit move anymore. When the Holy Spirit moves, awe is the result and I'm praying that New Heights Church, I, I, I am praying that we see a move of the Holy Spirit like we have never known before. And I've heard all the stories. I know the church I pastor. I know this is, this is New Heights, Tri-County Assembly of God Church, 60 years of history. And that we've had some of the most incredible moves of the Holy Spirit. And I'm praying that we experience a move of the Holy Spirit like we've never experienced before. I want to see miracles that produce this awareness and a brokenness in our hearts and in our lives. I want to see our seats full of people who are broken down and melted before the presence of God. That's what I want to see. I want a spirit of awe to grip our hearts and I want it in the sense that we start to walk carefully before him. That we become a people who are constantly praying that our lives are pleasing to him. I want a spirit of awe in our church. You come ready to meet with God when you come on Sunday. Do you, do you minister with the Spirit of God? Do you come prayed up with an encouraging word for somebody else? Or do you come to be entertained? You come to consume. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now, some people, they read this verse and uh, they said, well, the early church practiced communism. <laughs> no, they didn't. <laughs> no, they didn't. They sold everything and they distributed it. That's not communism. That's something entirely different. Listen, it's different from communism because communism is enforced participation. What the early church is doing is voluntary participation, okay? It's something they want to do. It's something the Lord laid on their heart to do. They don't need all this stuff, and they're going to share it with others who do need it. Now, when, when that is forced on somebody, well, then that's communism, okay? 
But that's not what's happening here in the early church. In fact, not everybody's doing it. Because if you look at verse 46, it says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their what? Their homes. Their homes. So evidently, some, some people kept their houses. They didn't sell their home. They kept them. They didn't, they didn't pool all their resources a lot of them did, but not all. Some kept their homes for themselves, for their family, but allowed it to be used by the church for Bible studies, for fellowship. This does not, this does not tell you that you've got to sell everything you own and give it to the church, okay? Now, I want you to look at a, a phrase here, glad and generous hearts. Glad here employs joyful and satisfied. Think about this for a minute. Are you guys joyful and satisfied when you give your money away? This is something I have to work on. Still, 40 years old, I'm still working on this. But I really had to work on it when I was young. So I was probably 11 years old when I learned about tithing and faith promises. Now, I kind of knew what they were. I just had never applied it to my life because I never made money or had money. But at 11 years old, I got a paper out, and I was really proud of this. Uh, I went out, got this paper out, and I was making money. And I remember that first check was written for like $80 and something cents, and I was so excited. An 11-year-old who's never had more than like $5 uh, all of a sudden have this check for $80, and I'm, I am just, I'm pumped, I'm excited. And then my dad walked in, and he said, all right, son. He said, let's go cash it and the first thing you're going to do is tithe <laughs> what <laughs> yeah you got to give 10 percent what yeah you got to give 10 percent you're kidding me and then so I'm pulling out the 10 percent and I'm looking at it I'm thinking man I don't feel good about giving this I didn't have a glad and and I wasn't joyful there was no gladness I, I didn't want to give away my money and then beyond the tithe my dad said now you got to fill out a faith promise since you since you're making money you got to fill out a faith promise I gotta give to missions? Yeah, I want, you to, I want you to give to missions. Give what God is telling. And I remember he put that paper on the kitchen table and he said, write down what you feel like God is telling you to give. And I remember I put one cent. I was not excited about giving, okay? I was not joyful, I was not satisfied, and I've gotta be honest, if I, I gotta be transparent with you today. I got in trouble when I was younger, before I was 11, for stealing from BGMC. Okay, did you just hear that? Yeah, I did that. Liz, close your ears. Married a missionary kid. I was, I was, I, money, I liked money. <laughs> I liked money a lot. And so it was really difficult. God forgave me, by the way. That's, that's covered by the blood, just so you know. And my dad made me give back tenfold, okay? I worked for it. <laughs> but I, I remember uh, just going up and just, Oh, I hated to give, but it's because I, I didn't understand something at 11 years old. I, I, I didn't understand that Jesus is way better. See, these, this early church, they, they were truly joyful. They, they, they were satisfied giving away their money. They were happy about it because they had found something better than money. And that's the exact opposite of where we are as a culture. It's the exact opposite of where I was at 11 years old when I was holding on to my money. J.D. Greer shared this in his sermon on Acts 2. He says, Germans save 10%. Now some of you, because my first thought was, well, 10%, that's not very good. But then as I started researching it, I figured out why he shared the 10% and, and that Germans share that 10% because they were one of the highest <laughs> globally. Okay, so Germans save 10%. Are you ready for how much Americans save? Get ready. All right, we save negative uh, 5.5%. 
So we're not, we're not talking about giving, okay? More than that, not only do we not save, we go into debt. That's like the, that's the opposite. It's the reverse of saving, right? We spend on average 1.26 for every dollar earned and 71% of all credit card balances in the U.S. have only the minimum monthly payment made. The evidence, now listen, the evidence of the gospel, if it's taken root in your heart, is a glad, generous heart. That's the evidence. We love, us Pentecostals, we love to talk about evidence in the book of Acts, don't we? <laughs> we love it. But this is evidence too, right here. This is, this is the evidence of somebody who has the Holy Spirit living inside their life. This is the evidence of somebody who is following Jesus, right? A glad and generous heart. Man, think about Paul. For crying out loud, he's in prison and he's singing. Think about Peter, he's in prison and he's sleeping. <laughs> Water off a duck's back, just one more night in the, in the slammer, right? These are signs of joy. These are signs of someone who's content. They had found something in God that was better than comfort, it was better than money, it was better than even their personal freedom. Now our concern when it comes to earthly possessions really should be this, uh, do, we, do we have all that we need and how can I give more? How can I give more? How can I give away more? How can I bless somebody? But when it comes to money, our, a lot of times we, we struggle, we struggle holding on to it because money can become a God sometimes, right? But the early believers, they found more joy in sharing with each other than they did possessing stuff. You think about God for a moment. Think about how God is the most generous giver ever. God gave us the earth. He, he made us in the image and in the likeness. We sinned against him and then he gave us his son. God so loved the world, he gave his, his only son. Jesus gave his life and then he died and then he rose and then he gave us his righteousness. He ascended into heaven, he gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the word of God. He gives us the people of God. He's preparing a place for us. He's got more gifts for us in heaven. Isn't that something? <laughs> He's got an inheritance for us in his kingdom that, that's gonna endure forever. Our God is extremely generous and here it is once you meet Jesus once you receive the Holy Spirit he awakens in you a desire to be generous all of a sudden you start thinking man I wish I could give more away the desire now is to give I wasn't there at 11 years old it took me a while to figure out the whole concept of giving to discover Jesus to discover that what I had was better than anything that this world could offer you know there there was a uh, the disciples, all of the disciples uh, were givers except for one, right? One who wasn't a giver. You guys know his name. You remember Judas. Okay, he was a taker. Jesus is a giver. Jesus' disciples are givers. Judas was a taker. God's people have the Holy Spirit and they're givers. They're not takers. Now we live in a world filled with, with takers and not a whole lot of givers. But when we come to Jesus, we become givers. So my question for you, New Heights Church, is do you have a glad and generous heart? Because here in our text, man, we are seeing some, some major radical generosity. They're voluntarily giving their possessions to other people. Some of them selling their possessions or giving the proceeds to, to other people. And you're gonna see in a few chapters that some of these people, they're selling their land off and giving the proceeds to the church. They're givers. Now, how much, how much joy could you have if you stopped spending? How much joy? 
And this is, a, this is good for me too, just so you know. The, one of the first things I want to do whenever I have a bad day, and Liz has now stopped me, there's this, what do you, this mint thing or this app that she gets, and now she knows every time I spend something. I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. And I thought I could trick her and do all these things. And so I would go and get Buffalo Wild Wings, and I would go to a barber shop and get the works. I love it when they'll shave you and when they'll do all that stuff, but it costs more. And I'll get this text from Liz. Why did you spend that at the barber shop? Doggone it, that mint application, whatever it is. And she can track me, but, but it, it took me a long time to get to the place where, where uh, I, w- I was thinking about how I can bless other people with what I have. You know, instead of this me and my mentality, it took me a while to get there. Liz has actually helped me a lot. She's always been a giver. It's just, it, it's like, I don't think it comes natural. I think she just probably uh, surrendered to the Holy Spirit a lot sooner than I did, but... Man, we're seeing people that are just, they're generous. They're giving away. They're, they're okay giving up some of those luxuries to give. Are you glad and generous in God? Or are, you, are you more uh, satisfied with your stuff? Now listen, many people can't be generous because they worship the very thing that they're supposed to be giving away. Sometimes people are, and, and then sometimes people be generous for the wrong reason. I can't go through this sermon without at least addressing this, okay? Sometimes people give for the wrong reasons because they want something in return. There is the prosperity gospel that has taken deep roots in the, in the church today. And Liz and I traveled all overseas and this, it's taken deep roots in the churches overseas. And I can't tell you how many times I have prayed with people who are giving for the wrong reason. Giving because they want the car. Giving because they want the bigger house. One of the most striking characteristics of the prosperity theologians is their, their seeming fixation on the act of giving. People are urged to give generously and, and they're confronted with statements like this. And, and I want to talk about these statements because these statements sound good, but they're built on the wrong premises. So listen, true prosperity is the ability to use God's power to meet the needs of mankind in any realm of life. That sounds good, right? We've been called to finance the gospel to the world. I mean, that's true, right? And these statements, they, they seem praiseworthy, but the emphasis on giving is built on motives that are, are anything but biblical because, again, the driving force behind the prosperity gospel is, is this, this whole uh, the law of, compensa- uh, law of compensation. And according to this law, which is supposedly based on Mark 10.30, and I do want to read 10.30 real quick with you, Mark 10, 30 says, who will not receive a hundredfold now in the same time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. The law of compensation is if you you give, you're gonna get more in return. Christians should give generously to others because when they do, God gives back in return and this in turn leads to this cycle of ever-increasing prosperity. A very well-known Christian author, very well-known, all, all over the TV, all over the radio, now YouTube, podcasts, wrote in her book in 2012, give $10 and receive 1000 Give 1000 and receive 100000 She goes on to say, in short, Mark 10.30, it's a pretty good deal. Now, it's evident that the prosperity gospel's doctrine of giving is built on faulty motives. Because the Bible shows us that Jesus taught his disciples to give, hoping for nothing in return. I mean, that's what Luke 6.35 says. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. 
prosperity theologians teach their disciples to give because they're gonna get this great return. That's not the kind of giving that's taking place in the early church. I want you to understand this. The early church gave and it was a sacrifice. Many of them gave their homes and never saw homes again until the day they died. They didn't give to get in return. They were good giving because they were investing into eternity. Now, I know we hate to talk about money in the church, but money's a topic in the Bible that comes up over and over and over. That's why Jesus in Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters. Either you're gonna hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is literally saying, for some people, money is their God. They think money can save them, keep them healthy, make them beautiful, make their life secure, take care of their family and give them heaven on earth. And if something ever does go wrong, well, they just go to the bank and they go visit their God and they can fix it. Who's your God, New Heights Church? What's your priority? What are the things that you're investing into? The early church was a generous church, radical generosity. And when the power of God moves in somebody's life, there's evidence of it. We read about the evidence all throughout the book of Acts. The power of God is evident here because Jesus became more important to them than their possessions. That's the evidence that the Holy Spirit is living inside of you. When you can come to that realization that Jesus is more important than anything else. Don't miss it. And I'll, 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 I'll say this. John Piper says there's two things because, you know, whenever you're asked with this question, if, if you're not being told to sell everything, but you're constant, or, and, and to give everything to the church, you're not to own anything. But all throughout the Bible, you're encouraged to be a generous giver, a cheerful giver. So how do you know what God is telling you to give? And, and we do things like faith promises. My dad, who put the, the paper and slid it across and said, why don't you fill out what God is telling you to give? How do you know what God is asking you to give? John Piper, I love it. He has two things that will help you out. He says there's a lot of other passages can be brought in to show that, that owning nothing and giving away everything wasn't really what was being taught in the New Testament. But he mentions two things that might give you some help discerning what to give and how much. The first thing he says is don't think just of percentages for how much you give away. Think of concrete people and concrete needs as you live your life and see if your heart really loves people. Here's what he means. The Good Samaritan, right? You guys know that story? He was commended. He stopped. He helped the wounded man on the road. He had some wine to give him. He had a donkey that he would let him ride. He had money, and he paid for his lodging. Jesus didn't question him. He didn't say, hey, why do you have a donkey? Hey, why do you have wine? Why do you have money? Why do you have these things? You're not supposed to. You're supposed to give all of it away. He doesn't do that. And the point was, do you love the person in front of you at a cost to yourself? All right, shift your way of thinking. You have to shift your way of thinking. You can't just think, what percentage can I get rid of? But instead, try to think like this. The people that I deal with and that I'm aware of, do I love them the way I should with my resources, okay? So that's the first thing. I think that's pretty good. Here's the second thing John Piper would say. Remember that all your money is God's. <laughs> Not just what you give to the Lord. All your money, even, even that that you withhold, that, that belongs to God. This means that we should think of every expenditure in a kingdom-advancing way, not just what we give away. It all belongs to Jesus. He owns you. He owns it. Every single thing you spend and what you give is ministry and should be designed to magnify Jesus. Okay? And we need to always pray for each other that, that we won't be taken captive by our possessions. Right? Verse 47 says, Praising God and having favor with all the people 
and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God, let this be the story at New Heights Church. Let people come who need salvation, who need grace and mercy. Let it be that they come week after week after week that we can see salvation, we can see life change. God, let it be in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we close, I want you to understand, I better tell Heart Song when I say that, that doesn't mean we're really about to close. <laughs> No question that Luke wants the readers to know that the church was growing. No question about it. Man, he wants, he wants readers to know that there were people coming. He's talking numbers here, all right? He wants the readers to know that church was growing. God was doing it through quantitative growth as well as qualitative growth. Now, Luke emphasized both sides of the church growing. He's showing us how the, the church was growing numerically, but he's also showing us the quality of the growth. I want us to look just a little bit right now at the, at the numerical growth that they were experiencing. We can't say God doesn't care about numbers. We just can't say it. Luke's intentional about the number of people that are coming to faith in Jesus. He tells us in Acts 1.15 that it all started with about 120 people. By Acts 2.41, about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 people came to the faith in Jesus. By Acts 4, it grew to 5,000. He continues to talk in Acts chapter 6, verse 1 and verse 7, that the number of disciples was increasing. In Acts 9.31, we read that the church grew daily in numbers. The church was strengthened in numbers. And now I'm going to read off a few instances just real quick. And if you're not quick at taking notes, don't worry. You can go to uh, online. You can go to our app and you can get our notes. And I have provided all of these scripture passages for you so you can go back and look later. But if you turn to Acts 11... And again, you probably won't be able to do it now because I'm going to list them off like a machine gun. But if, if you circle, I, I want you to circle every time you see Luke referring to the number of people that were coming to faith in Jesus or the number of people that were being added to the church. Just circle the word number, okay, whenever you see it. You look at Acts 11.21. This is talking about the church at Antioch, and, and Luke is telling us how it's growing he says this, and, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. You look at Acts 11.24. This is talking about Barnabas now. Acts 24. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. If you keep looking at verses 25 through 26, it says, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought them to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now, I don't want you to miss it. Luke wants us to know a whole bunch of people are coming to Jesus. A lot of people are coming to Jesus. You turn to Acts 14.1. Luke was very detailed in describing how the church was growing numerically. The Bible says, now at Iconium, I hope I'm saying that right, they entered together in the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number, a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Look at 14.21. They came back to Antioch in Syria, and it says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. Man, it's like a similar theme is happening here, right? People are coming to Jesus. 
Look at Acts 16.5, Timothy, Paul, Silas, Barnabas. They're out doing missionary work. They're out spreading the gospel. They're out starting churches. And, and Acts 16.5 says, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Look at Acts 17.4. This is talking about when Paul went to Thessalonica. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So now a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a bunch of prominent women have come to know Jesus. He's talking numbers here. People coming to know the Lord. Acts 17, 2, and this is in Berea. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Acts 19, 26. Man, it's, it's just a reoccurring theme. Paul in Ephesus here, he preaches the gospel, a riot erupts and as a result of what was happening and people were all mad and ticked off at Paul wanting to kill him. And in, in verse Acts 19, 26, it says this, and you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that, God, that God's made with hands are not God's. So Luke, man, he's intentional. He's doing this, uh, he's being strategic about this. He knows what he's doing. Don't miss it. Over and over again, the number of disciples were increasing. A large number of people were coming to Jesus. A large number of people had their lives changed. Church is growing. But as many times as we see this, and here's what I want you to get, as many times as we see this idea of, of numbers being emphasized in the book of Acts, Far more times we see the quantitative growth, uh, see not the quantitative growth, but the qualitative growth of the church that's emphasized. Yeah, Luke tells us about a number of people that are coming to faith in Jesus, but think about where he spent the majority of his time in the book of Acts. Think about it. He spends two chapters talking about how two of these men, Peter and John, healed a guy and preached the gospel. He spends the whole next chapter, that's, that's Acts 5, talking about how the people that had come to faith in Christ were being persecuted. And now get this, follow, stick with me. I know I'm listening off a bunch of scriptures. Stay with me. I'm gonna bring it home, I promise. He comes to Acts chapter 5, verse 41, and he says this, listen. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. See, I need you to catch this. He's not just talking about how many. He's talking about who they were. These are people who can rejoice when they're being persecuted. Why? Because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And in Acts 6 and 7, he gives us a picture of a Grecian comfort named Stephen who was stoned because he proclaimed the gospel. In chapter 8, he focuses on a guy named Philip and how Philip sacrificed everything to spread the gospel throughout Judea and Samaria. And then he gets to chapter 9 and he's focusing on Saul, the persecutor of Christians, and how his life has turned upside down and now he becomes the greater, greatest preacher in Acts. In chapter 10, he gives us a picture of Peter having his life turned upside down and the whole face of the church is changing because Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus. In, in the chapter that follows, Luke focuses on Paul's life. And you see him, you see him come to Acts 20, 24 and listen to what he says. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So yeah, we see numbers, we see quantitative growth, but at the same time, Luke is spending most of his book showing us a picture of who they were and what kind of believers the early church had. 
So Acts makes us ask, ask two questions here, okay? One of them is far less important than the other. And I'm getting ready to close here. One is far less important than the other. The, the less important question is how many people are coming? How many people are coming? When we think about the church growing, that's the most often question that comes to our mind is how many people are coming? And can I stop? I've always been transparent with, with you guys. Can I, can I just be transparent as a pastor? This is a pressure that's always on you. Man, I can't go to a conference. I never hear this question. Hey, tell me about life's being changed at the church. Hey, tell me about the, the people that you guys are producing right now. No, I always get this question asked. How many, what's your attendance on a Sunday morning? What do you guys, what, 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 what's attendance looking like? And I don't, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't help that I came to a church with 60 years of history and this was a powerhouse church. I tell Liz all the time, I get these officials in Springfield that I've never met, they'll text me on a Sunday or Facebook message me, hey, that was a great sermon. Why are they watching my, our, our church? Take it off live stream. <laughs> I want to stay off the radar. I feel like I'm in a fishbowl coming to Tri-County Assembly of God Church. Everybody's looking. Everybody's watching. You got a church that can seat 3,000 people. What's your, what's your attendance on Sunday? There's this pressure. It's, it's always there. It exists. And I'm going to be really transparent. There are sometimes, in fact, today my wife had to correct me. She said, Justin, you're preaching on how numbers aren't important, and you're looking back and telling me, ah, it's a low, a low week. Bummed out. Heart song's here. Where are our people? Liz said, can you just focus on what you were going to preach? That was really good. <laughs> Because we just think, man, if we could just get to a second service, you know what? That means a lot of people are coming. That means the church is growing. How do we know the church is growing? Well, by the numbers, right? <laughs> but I want our church to understand that this early church wasn't just experiencing that kind of growth. Listen to me, New Heights Church. Numbers don't necessarily mean greatness, especially in the church. We've been, we've not been called to attract a crowd. Lots of things we could do to attract a crowd. Lots of things told you about that pastor last week told you about the pastor who turned his sanctuary into a rodeo he rode a buck on a or not a buck <laughs> that that would really draw a crowd a bull <laughs> we've not been called to attract a crowd now i understand that the church with the best programs are drawing in the largest crowds i get it but so are the best restaurants and so are the best theaters because they all entertain you can draw a crowd that way you can I can't just judge our success based on the crowd on Sunday. It could be possible that all that means is nothing more than we're putting on a good show. And if our measure of success is how many people are coming, and that question alone, then we'll never experience the growth that Jesus wants to add to this church. We cannot be content to ask the question and move on to the point to our, and point to our numbers. You can draw a crowd with anything. There's all kinds of things we can do to draw a crowd, but that's the less important question here. The all-important question, the most important question here is what kind of people are we producing? The all-important question is what kind of people is New Heights Church producing? Now that's the question by which success is measured in the church of Jesus Christ. And it's not that the two don't go together, but if we just have the one, which is what we most often do, and forget about the second one, we miss the whole point. 
Now, nobody else wants these seats to be full more than your pastor. I want these seats full with people who are hungry for Jesus. I do. But it's not how many people are here. The question is, what kind of families are we producing? What kind of men are we producing to lead families? Are we producing men who are honest in business? Are we producing families that are passionate about proclaiming the gospel? Are we producing the kind of teenagers that could say what Paul did and would count it worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ? Are we producing kids who can go to school and be told by a teacher that there is no God and their faith won't be shaken? Are we producing that kind of person? Are we producing men and women who are risking everything, risking their careers, their bank accounts, their retirement plans, risking it all to penetrate the community with the gospel? Is that the type of people we're producing? That's the question we need to start asking. What kind of people are we producing? Because listen, listen, New Heights Church, God won't be satisfied to know that we attracted a large crowd on Sunday and only a few became producers for the kingdom. Man, I gotta answer to God one day. I have to answer to God for how I led this church, for what I preached from this pulpit. I have to answer for that. I'm telling you, he's not gonna care if I draw a crowd. He won't be satisfied to know that we attracted thousands and thousands of people if only a few of them became producers for the kingdom. So we need to have the courage to ask the right questions. We need to have the courage to ask the tough questions and we have to face the answers. It's, just, it's not just how many people are coming, but what kind of people are we producing? It's quantitative and qualitative growth in the early church and I pray that this is gonna be so in our church today. Now I wanna do what I always do. I wanna pray and I wanna close out the service and I wanna dismiss those who have to go. This is the official dismissal. Go be the church. But Heart Song is gonna come back. They're gonna lead in worship. We're gonna open up our altars. I talked about the early church being in awe. Awe of God. Awe of his, his presence. Remember, you wanna you want be in a, a spirit of awe, you have to be aware of his presence. Sometimes to be aware of his presence is simply just sacrificing our agenda and just standing before God. That's it. So that's what I want to do. We do it every, every Sunday. We give people a, a chance and an opportunity to respond to what the Holy Spirit's doing. And so we're going to open up these altars for you if you want to come up and pray. We can have some of our prayer team, some of our pastoral staff come up if you need somebody to pray with you. And if you just want to come up and pray, that's okay. A lot of times I've been asked, why do you do altar calls? Is it really because God can do something uh, at these steps and he can't do something as I'm sitting in my chair? No, that's not it. But all throughout the Bible, Jesus gives opportunities and invites to people to operate in faith. He always did it. Somebody wants to be healed, he'd spit in mud. Somebody wants to be healed, he'd go tell them to do this. Jesus was the one healing. Jesus can heal any way he wants. But there's something powerful when we initiate and we operate in faith. And so I always say, when you're coming to the altar, a lot of times that's you initiating your faith. You're just operating in faith at this point. You're kind of making a declaration. You're believing that God's gonna move. That's, what, that's why we do altar calls. No, you're right. God can touch you in your seat, but there's something that happens when you operate in faith. And so we're gonna open up these altars, and we're gonna just praise and worship God, and we're gonna pray that we would be in a spirit of awe 
at the wonderful things that God does. Father, we love you and we praise you. We are so thankful and grateful for your word and for the Holy Spirit. And God, we pray right now that you would send your Holy Spirit on each of us right now. Fill us again afresh and anew with your spirit. And I pray that we would be all in a spirit of awe and God, that you would begin to do miraculous things in our life. I know we have loved ones that are desperate for you and desperate for your grace and mercy and we're praying for breakthroughs. I know that we know people who are sick right, right this moment who are battling illness and sickness and we're gonna pray for your healing in Jesus' name. I know that there are marriages that are hurting and God, we're gonna pray for restoration. Lord, there are people that need to offer forgiveness, and there are people that need to extend grace. Lord, we just pray that the Holy Spirit would move in this place right now. In Jesus' name, amen.